Hey, Max, have you ever met someone who was your perfect fantasy, but then they have this really weird behavior trait that just ruins everything? Well, not ruins everything. Why? Because the author of my book this week gave me that happy experience, and it's not even the worst part. Welcome to Second to Die, horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And I guess if you and me, if everybody wants to know what exactly Cole's talking about, they'll have to wait until later in the episode. Which is what happens when I do the intros. (laughs) So all of you should hope that Max does next time. Well, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. So if you want to hear that, First, you're going to have to slog through me talking about a movie that really sucks. With your voice that sounds extra gravelly today. Oh, yeah. Before I get into that, that was also like a, a, a joke, but not a good one. If my voice sounds weird, and I honestly, I think it's going to sound worse and worse throughout the episode because I can already feel it. It's because I strained my vocal cords yesterday. No, two days ago. No, yesterday. Yesterday. It was yesterday. I was at work and you texted me that you upset the cat. Yes. I accidentally strained my vocal cords. How did I do this, you ask? Well, I'll tell you quickly. Sometimes when I get spam calls from people who tell me that my social security number has been compromised. Or that you need to re-up your car insurance or warranty or whatever. And I'm feeling a little anxious and stressed out. I find that I can combine those two occurrences and relieve my stress by screaming at the top of my lungs into the phone at those people. I'm not saying it's a mature response, but it makes me feel better. So I'm going to keep doing it. But I did this way too loud this time, and I strained my vocal cords and freaked the cat out who did not forgive me for an entire evening. So that's why I may sound a little raspy. I'm recording my jazz single right after this. <laughs> anyway, so I'm talk- I haven't even re- remotely said what movie I'm going to talk about, but I guess I'll just do that. I don't have anything else to say about that. Look, we're all trying to entertain ourselves here, okay? We don't leave the house. What are we supposed to do for fun? All right. Before we get into Cole's book, I will just uh, start off by saying I'm talking about a movie from 2019 today, I'm not going to give away the ending to this because it's not the worst thing I've seen. Unlike Down, I was like, nobody's going to watch this. But this movie, I won't give away the ending. I will talk about. I was excited because I've actually known about this movie for a while. just never got around to watching it. And it is the 2019 movie, The Shed. It is directed by Frank Sabatella, written by Jason Rice and Frank Sabatella. So it's, oh yeah. And I'll just say it stars a few people, but three mainly. So I'll just say them because it's not difficult to do. J.J. Warren, Cody Costro, and Sophia Hipponen. This movie. So, okay, I'm going to read the blurb before I say anything else about this movie. And and this will kind of say why I liked it. And also, I had seen the trailer for this. And the trailer basically seemed exactly like this blurb. Okay. A teen and his best friend endure nonstop torment from bullies at school, but that soon changes when one discovers a bloodthirsty creature that resides in a country shed. Okay, sounds interesting. 
And then you watch the trailer. And what the trailer makes the movie seem like is this kid discovers that there's this like monster in his shed that will kill anybody that goes in it. So he lures these bullies in and like makes them go in the shed to like kill his high school bullies. That sounds like a great premise to a movie. Okay. So I was also mercilessly bullied in high school, but I just developed severe body image issues and a really dark sense of humor. I didn't kill anyone. (laughs) Well, those can be powerful too, because the gays have weaponized body image issues. Oh yeah. I'm much hotter (laughs) than any of my bullies. I mean, the thing is, is like, it's out and it kind of comes into play in the movie. So I'll talk about it more, but the whole issue of like, should I kill my bullies? I don't know. I was bullied in high school, but I think more than anything, people were kind of like scared of me a little bit, but they also just didn't really socialize with me at all. Like I remember being made fun of, and I'm sure they made fun of me more like behind their backs, but I kind of just sort of kept to myself for the most part. And when you're the kid with like, I don't know, just like fucking pentagrams all over him, people weren't really looking to like piss you off. I mean, this is like, not to make a joke, but this is like in the wake of Columbine and all that stuff. Like that happened while I was in high school. So people were like not looking to piss off the kid that wears a trench coat to school every day. And that's that. And that's the real tea. But I don't know. But I can I can see where this kid is coming from. However, I I don't know. I can see where he's coming from. I don't relate to where he went with it. (laughs) I took a different exit on the highway of childhood trauma. (laughs) I mean, if you... It's kind of weird because I think there's supposed to be a disconnect of like, if we use the shed to kill people, like we're not killing them. Oh boy. (laughs) Oh boy. There is so much to unpack there. Well... I mean, I can see the logic. I didn't I didn't kill him. I just told him to go in the shed. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Yikes. Sheds don't kill people. People with sheds kill people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess I guess we can talk about this. Here's my issue with this movie. That all sounds like an interesting premise to a movie. And I was ready for this like weird kind of creature movie where to be honest, I was totally fine with them, like, not even explaining what the creature in the shed was. Like, I kind of like that horror where it's like, you don't have to know. It's just, this just happens, and this is like this. And so now let's see where we're at. Like, sometimes I like horror that doesn't overthink itself or overexplain itself. But this movie did not do that. And you become very aware in the first, it's literally the opening sequence of this movie, is this guy with a rifle running around a forest. And you become quickly aware that this movie is not a mysterious monster in a shed movie. It is a vampire movie. And this made me like it a lot less. Not that I'm opposed to vampire movies. I love vampires. They are my jam. I was like super vampire fan club when I was a kid. And I still love vampires. But I did not want this movie to be a vampire movie. And so the issue is the creature in the shed is a vampire and that went about as well as you could imagine. I mean, it's been a full like minute and a half since you revealed that it was a vampire, and I am still processing my deep-seated disappointment. Yes. So I don't have a lot of like trivia and stuff, so I'm just going to kind of weave the plot into like a general discussion with this because it's a newer movie. So, Because like the opening scene, so 
I was wanting this like creature thing. And if they did tell us what it was, I was thinking, okay, well, at the end, they'll like show us what this creature is or, or whatever. And that's not what it was at all. The intro to the movie is the guy in the forest, like I said, chasing something. And then it turns out that he finds the thing and like it's a vampire and it bites the guy's neck. But then apparently had been chasing the guy so long it forgot the sun was coming up. So the sun comes up and kills that vampire. But then the guy quickly transforms into a vampire and the sun is like starting to hurt him. So he like covers himself and runs into this shed that he sees because it's the only shelter that he can find. So like that's how the vampire gets into the shed. That makes a relative amount of logical sense. Yes. The weird part is later on in the movie, very, very later on, like the ending... The vampire seems to be kind of sentient and able to talk and communicate, but in the early stages does not do this at all and is more so almost this like feral type creature that attacks the main character whose name is Stanley. Like when he just first goes into the shed, like essentially Stanley goes in the shed because he has to mow the lawn and he finds like some human teeth in there and he's like, I don't keep teeth in my shed. This is weird. And then he gets... Attacked by this creature and like runs out and the creature obviously can't follow him because it's a vampire. But it's like the creature seems to like attack him almost against any sort of like will that it may have. But then later on in the movie, the creature can actually like have conversations with them. It's weird. Like it's not very consistent in terms of like what its vampire mythos is. And that I also did not like. Also, why didn't he just leave that night? Yeah. So the movie takes place. At first I was like, well, this movie must just take place over the course of one day. Because otherwise, why wouldn't the vampire leave at nightfall? It sort of addresses that in that once Stanley figures out that there is a monster in the shed, he boards the shed up like he nails it and chains it up. But this monster, this vampire has like superhuman strength and speed, which is very clear later on. But apparently like a little two by four nailed across a shed door is too much for his superhuman strength. So he can't get out. Oh, boy. All right. These are all the things that kind of bothered me about it. So, and this isn't even really a heavy spoiler because the fact that it's a vampire movie is literally in the first part of it. And it's not in that blurb. But if you go on the IMDb of it, it actually does say that the creature is a vampire in that version of the blurb. Mm. Anyway. So, the main, like I said, the main character is Stanley. And there's this kind of opening sequence where he's having breakfast with his parents. They're like a very nice nuclear family and stuff like this. And then all of a sudden the mother has like no hair and like radiation sickness. And then the father kills himself and then he wakes up and it was a dream. Oh boy. But I guess it wasn't a dream. They're just kind of alluding that this is something that happened. And now he's living with his grandfather. His grandfather is like almost like a caricature like super strict alcoholic asshole and because of this they also give him a very thick country accent even though nobody in the film has a southern accent because i don't know it reminded me of like when they give villains um british accents yeah it was like that for effect yes and he's like super abusive and and like whatever stanley is like he's kind of like the unpopular kid even though To be honest, he, I don't know. Here's the problem with it. One, he is pretty attractive. And two, to convey that he's like the unpopular kid, they just have him wearing these like band t-shirts and like grungy plaid clothes and stuff like this. But it's like, he looks like any alternative skater kid in a school. And it's hard to imagine that somebody like this would be the unpopular kid. Yeah. I'll just point that out there. 
It's like sometimes these movies have like the unpopular kid and it's like, there's no way that this person would be unpopular in high school. There is a click for that. Oh, he also looks like he's 28 for anyone who's worried about that. So, but he's supposed to be 17. Mm. He's also on probation for something. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's weird. And I'm going to get into that. So Stanley is on his way to school. And he's listening to his music. The soundtrack of this is actually pretty good. He, the type of music he listens to is kind of fun. It's like alternative rocky stuff. Eventually, he almost runs into this police car on his bike because some bullies kind of distract him in their car. And then the sheriff and the deputy get out. And they're basically... So this is a small town, so they know who he is. And the deputy is like, you know, you're going to be 18 soon. And you better watch it because they're trying to portray Stanley as this like trouble kid that like the deputy is going to like keep an eye on and stuff like that. Yeah. And the deputy is like the deputy who also is very handsome, by the way, is like the next time you mess up, you're playing for keeps and I'm going to be right up your ass. And Stanley's like, I'm sure you're looking forward to getting up my ass, Deputy Dave. And I was like, okay. This movie could have gone a whole different direction. I'm into the hot police officer, cute, grungy, twink scene. Like, this movie could be up my alley. Then the vampire ruined it. Oh, also, just thinking about it, that is the last we see of that deputy. Period. He never appears in the movie again. So I, that's dumb. The sheriff who is with him, she does appear because she's ultimately killed. But the deputy is, like, just not a character. It's he like, just shows up to be hot and vaguely homoerotic. Yeah. Which I'm okay with a homoerotic cameo. I feel like that can only improve movies. So the movie kind of revolves around Stanley, obviously. He also has his best friend whose name is Dahmer. D-O-M-M-E-R. I don't think that's a name. I don't think that's a good name. That's better than D-A-H-M-E-R. Yeah, but... Not by much. I only even know the spelling because I looked it up because they kept calling him Dahmer. And I was like, I have to be mishearing this. But no. Dahmer is Stanley's only friend. And he is also like an unpopular kid. He is more believably unpopular. And the two of them, to be honest, actually have pretty good chemistry as friends together. They probably should have just had a romance, but I didn't write this movie, so they didn't. Instead, they're into this girl, Roxy. But it kind of comes out that like... Roxy and Stanley were a thing, but then, like, she broke up with him because she got with the school bully whose name is Marble, I believe. Marble? Let me double check, but yeah. Yeah, his name is Marble. And he was like... What the fuck? He was, like, an over-the-top character of, of a school bully. Like, every second he wanted to bully. He also was in, like, banana shape, like bodybuilder almost shape supposed to be this like 17 year old kid but built like a 25 year old has been working out for 10 years yeah it was part of the problem i think with this movie is that so many of the characters were literal just like caricatures of themselves like instead of depth it was just like they were so one note to be honest now thinking back on it everybody was like that even stanley the main character is kind of this just like troubled grungy skater teen and that's all there is to him yeah so you stop kind of caring about a lot of these characters I don't know. It was an issue. Fast forward, basically, like, the the whole point of, like, introducing Dahmer is to kind of show that both Dahmer and Stanley are bullied a lot. And so, at some point, Dahmer goes over to Stanley's house, and Stanley shows Dahmer the shed. And basically shows him that there's a monster in it. And so, Dahmer is like, 
we need to use this shed to kill these bullies. Oh, that's the plan. But Stan, (laughs) I know he's thinking he's like thinking long term goals. But Stanley is like, no, murder is bad. Killing people doesn't solve anything. And it's like, God damn it, Stanley. Stop being a buzzkill. Yeah, seriously. With your moral high ground. Your moral standard that you hold yourself to. Yeah, exactly. So he doesn't want to do that. So Stanley gets into a fight with a school bully later on. And then the sheriff goes to his house. Oh, I totally forgot. The grandfather... Mm, I totally forgot this, and I'm trying to think of the best way to sum it up. Essentially, the grandfather goes to the shed and ends up getting killed. He goes to the shed looking for the dog. They had this, like, really adorable German shepherd who also gets killed by the vampire. Weirdly enough, part of the negative reviews of this movie online is about the fact that a dog is killed in it. And I found that kind of fascinating. But I also agree. Because they're like... The senseless dog death in this movie made it unwatchable for me. Like, things like that. And I'm like, I wasn't happy. It's not necessary. It's basically, like, the dog is barking at the shed. And, like, Stanley, like, sicks the dog on the shed because he thinks it's, like, honestly, I think he thinks it's, like, a vagrant or something, like, in his shed. Which, probably don't sick your dog on people, like, without homes. But then the dog ends up getting killed. And... It's it's kind of graphic too because it's like the, the the vampire throws the dog's head out the door afterwards. So I guess it's like a little bit graphic and people didn't like that. But also you're watching a horror movie, man. Lighten up a little bit. Like they're okay with the people getting killed. Dogs are better than people. Dogs are better than people. That's true. But even still. So anyways, so the grandfather goes in looking for his dog and the grandfather gets killed. Okay, that's the whole point of that. Because then the sheriff basically goes to the house looking for the grandfather and then the sheriff also gets killed. So then after after all that, Dahmer basically comes over to Stanley's house and basically sees like the, the sheriff's arm is like laying on the ground because she had, I don't know, the, the vampire like throws pieces of people out. I don't know why that is. It's like the... Parts he doesn't like. He just, like, rips them off like string cheese. And so her arm has the gun. So so basically Dahmer, like, takes the gun. Oh, and then also Marble is there. So Marble shows up. Marble starts beating the crap out of Stanley. They had gotten into a fight at school. This is, like, it's, like, too much and not worth talking about. So I'll just do the short version. Marble is, like, starting to beat up Stanley. Dahmer has the gun. So Dahmer is basically, like, shoots the gun in the air. Marble realizes he has a gun and is freaking out. And then Dahmer makes Marble get into the shed. And then Marble ends up getting killed. Stanley does not think that that's very cool. And then Dahmer kind of like knocks Stanley out. It doesn't really explain why that happens. But when he comes to, he's by himself and he can't find Dahmer. So he goes into the shed and Dahmer is in the shed, but he's like transforming into a vampire. So and then the other vampire guy is gone. And it's starting to become nightfall. It's kind of weird because the vampire instantly kills and like mangles every person who goes in the shed. But then like magically when Stanley's friend goes in there, he just gets bit and, and turned. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So then Roxy shows up. They had locked Dahmer in the shed. So then Roxy shows up and 
Stanley kind of explains everything to Roxy. And basically, then Stanley and Dahmer have this like confrontation where Stanley kills Dahmer. I'll just point that out. So he kills his best friend because he's a vampire. Yeah. Like you have to do sometimes. So then they're like, I think that the other vampire is going to come back for me tonight. So we have to prepare. So then there's this montage of Roxy and Stanley having this like final showdown, like preparation where they're like boarding up the house, getting their stakes. It's like very like typical vampire slayer final confrontation montage. The final confrontation is quite long. It takes up a good portion of the movie. But I'm not going to talk about any of it because I'm just going to let people watch it if they want to see how things go down, to see who lives, who dies, if Stanley makes it, if Roxy makes it. I'm not going to spoil any of those. The only thing I will say is when they're doing the, when they're like locking the house up, all they do at the front door is like deadbolt it and then put one of those like little chain sliders on. But that seems to work. Apparently, like the vampire can't get past that. So. So, yeah, if you want to know what happens in that, you can you can watch it. But I am going to tell you my final thoughts and a little bit more about this movie in case you do want to watch it, in case you don't want to watch it, and you just want to hear me kind of talk about it. Because I didn't obviously love this movie. You can kind of tell. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious. But I didn't hate, hate, hate it. It was not the worst thing I've seen. But if I had to categorize it as like a vampire movie, it probably would be one of the worst ones I've seen. Yeah. So, good things. Soundtrack is actually pretty good. I enjoyed the music of it, which is pretty important. I did have one issue in that there is this very cool cover of House of the Rising Sun, which is also why I played it the other day because it was oh. in my, it was stuck in my head. However, I was annoyed because they changed the lyrics from um, there is a house in New Orleans to there is a house on the edge of town. Oh. And I was like, that's not the song. Change it back. But it was a good cover aside from that. Other issues. There's kind of a lot of annoying dream sequences in it that I just didn't get into because they weren't worth talking about. They seem to hint at the... They seem to hint that perhaps the vampire can influence Stanley's dreams. They never expand upon that. But, like... Because, like, at one point he has a dream of, like, Roxy and she's in, like, lingerie and she starts to, like, ride him and then she, like, turns into the vampire and he, like, attacks him and then he wakes up. And then he kind of hears this like weird, like ethereal, like cat, like vampire cackling. That's stupid. Yeah. And that was one of my problems is they don't, I feel like if you're going to do a vampire movie, you kind of have to establish your mythos a little bit. Like what kind of vampires are we dealing with here? And if you don't, and you just have them have these random sort of, maybe they have this power, maybe they don't. It just comes off as a little disheveled to me. So that bothered me trying to think of like what other final thoughts i have it's funny because i said like the final showdown takes up like a pretty big chunk of the movie but the way that i have it written in my notes is literally like it's basically like don't spoil it but this ending is really fucking long and drags on a lot that the movie could have been 20 minutes shorter and it would have been way better and then i have repeated the ending is bad like really bad what is this showdown that i am watching this is dumb Oh, yes. It also ends in a cliffhanger, which is completely unnecessary and ineffective, and I hate it. I won't tell you what it is. If you want to see it, go watch it. But ultimately, what I would say about this movie is if if I was doing, like, a vampire marathon where I needed, like, some filler features, I would maybe use something like this. But I would definitely not actually, like, choose to watch this. Not as, like, part of a vampire movie or part of, like... I want to watch a good movie at night. It's very much so a filler movie. Yeah. 
that's basically it. I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. It's kind of like, I don't know. It had so much potential. I think I might even be harder on it because I thought that the premise of it when I first saw the trailer was so interesting and cool and was like, this could be done so well. But it kind of reminded me of something that could have been a great short story. Because it's like, I think it could have been a great short story where it's like, somebody wakes up to discover a monster in his shed and then decides whether or not to kill all his enemies by luring them into the shed. Yeah. That, that could be like a good short story. But dragging it out into a feature film and making it a vampire movie, that's a no from me. Yeah. No. Firm pass. Anyway, that's 2019's The Shed. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, so this is the week that I'm finally doing the book that I've hinted at a couple of times for our sharper-eared listeners that I just liked it so much that I kept putting off this episode. I just realized, though, this is... Is that a paperbacks from hell tag? It it is a paperbacks from hell tag. Oh, no. And I didn't like it. I mentioned sharp-eared listeners because Lara at work... Said I don't even remember exactly what she said, but she said something about me mentioning a book that I didn't like that I just kept pushing it back. <laughs> uh, to give people like a little bit of a scope of reference, I've kind of pared down how far in advance I read my books, but I still usually read them about a month before we record. I read this book at the beginning of November. Oh, yeah. Wow. And I just kept pushing it back because I hated it. Spoiler alert, I hated it. Uh, This week, I am doing 1977's The Spirit by Thomas Page. It is the next title that I'm doing that, like you pointed out, is from the Paperbacks from Hell re-release series. And it's the first one that disappointed me. I won't lie to you there. Let's take a quick look at the cover. It was painted by Tom Hallman. It's like a lone cabin on a snowy expanse. And you see a fanged skull face in the snow flurries above it. It's... Very dramatic. And honestly, it looks really cool. I've seen another book called Cold Front that uses the same art. I don't know if it's the same book under a different title. I really should have looked that up before we recorded this. But here we are. It it looks vaguely familiar to me. But I honestly, I think the whole like skull in the like clouds, wind, mist, blur. I think that like, that's used a lot. I also will say a couple things. I'm getting like the full experience right now because it is very cold right now in New Orleans and my feet have not been not cold in a very long time. So I'm kind of like, I feel like it's like an immersive experience looking at this cover. The other thing I'll notice about it is for people who don't know, Cole has this like tab system. He's very organized with his books where he tabs different things that happen. And normally your books are like filled with tabs. This one does not seem to have as many. Um, that would be because, and I'll talk a little bit more about like my actual experience reading this later. I disliked it. I took very few notes for this one too. I disliked it so much that I had like a reading schedule, read this much each day. And I just didn't want to stop to mark anything or write anything down because it would just draw out that day's reading. Mm. (laughs) Let me just get through this. Pretty much. Gotta fight a dollar for every time I've said that. I know. Right? All right. Let's go ahead and get to the blurb. For John Moon, a half-mad Indian, which cut in right now. (laughs) (laughs) Cut in right now. That is a direct quote. I will never call him that again throughout the course of this 
episode. It's Wait. kind of like with episode one when I started talking about Romani people and how I was going to change that. Did they half mad Indian? Yes. Okay. But we'll get we'll get to why he's half mad in a minute. Anyway, for John Moon, a half mad indigenous person, it is a spirit that holds the key to his inner self. He worships its power and he'll kill to protect it. Desperate, exhausted, half-starved, Moon will follow it wherever it goes. For Raymond Jason, killing it has become an obsession. He was the only survivor of a hunting trip in the Rockies where the hunters became the monster's prey. Now he's determined to track the creature down and destroy it. But when the two men finally corner their quarry, they set loose a flood of terror and destruction that may have no survivors. Sounds a little bit like a metaphor for white people killing Native American culture. Which is basically what this author did. So, (laughs) the word makes it seem kind of cool, but I'm going to go ahead and level with you about these two characters. On the one hand, Thomas Page, our author, a white man, has given us John Moon, an indigenous man, on a journey to find, you guessed it, his spirit animal. He has also decided that John Moon's spirit animal is going to be Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is Bigfoot really an animal, though? I don't know. Oh, we get into Bigfoot's origin. My spirit animal is Chardonnay. (laughs) Anyway. So much. It's so much. (laughs) Uh, Oh, boy. Uh, on the other end, we have Raymond Jason. As our blurb tells us, he was on a hunting trip. He was the sole survivor. He witnessed the other three men get killed. He got a glimpse of Bigfoot, so he knows like vaguely what he's chasing after. Uh, really quick rundown of said trip. First of all, Raymond basically buys his way onto this trip because he's super rich. And... He says that he can handle the harsh conditions of the trip easily because he goes extreme camping for weeks on end. What is extreme camping? I don't know. Like survivalist camping? Yeah. We've talked about it before. Camping is not my thing. My brother goes camping all the time. And so much respect for him and his wife. I know, but like, I just can't be out there with like the silence and my thoughts and bugs. Mm-mm. That's not for me. Spiders. No, thank you. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, while on this trip, they find a musk ox that has been killed and completely stripped. And next to it is a giant footprint. This footprint is 14 by 7. And some of our gentle listeners, like Laura, might remember when I referenced asking you randomly out of the blue to measure your foot. Yes, I remember this. I literally send a text message that was like, hey, can you measure your foot for me? I don't know why I thought you asked me that. I clarified later in my defense. Anyway, so I had to have you do this because while I appear deceptively average-sized in photos, gentle listener, I am actually quite a small man and my feet are tiny. So it was hard for me to gauge how like outlandishly large a 14 by 7 foot was by normal standards. So if any of you are foot fetishists, 
listening at home, today is your lucky day. Max wears a size 11 and his feet measure 12 by 5. So when you think about it, 14 by 7 is not actually that crazy. Yeah, that's not actually that big. I mean, I I do have big feet, but that's like I would think Bigfoot would have like 20 inch feet. Yeah, but they were just like gobsmacked by how massive this foot was. I think we should call him moderately sized foot. Modest. Modest foot. Modest foot. Modest foot. Let's go. Medium foot. Medium foot. No, I like modest better. Anyway, that night they hear weird noises and it's modest foot digging through their shit. So they shoot at him. And this sets modest foot into a rage like it would. Why do you, why do people just shoot at things before figuring out what they are? It's vaguely humanoid. And they're just like, let's shoot it. Like, fuck you. God, that's people for you though. Well, that's fine, because he rips off one of the uh, people's heads. (laughs) Kind of off camera, off page, I suppose. Yeah. Um, But there is a nice little scene where he walks through someone's view, just like toting the head around. The other two hunters follow Bigfoot in a helicopter, while Raymond follows on foot, which doesn't seem possible, but okay. Anyway, John Moon, who is protecting Modest Foot, shoots down the helicopter, leaving Raymond as the only survivor. Wait, shoots down the helicopter with what? A rifle. That seems like it would be really hard to do. He's like a super talented sharpshooter. <laughs> that is actually like his character. We'll get okay. more into that, trust me, in a real problematic way. Was he like a, a code breaker? We'll get into it. Okay. <laughs> it's bad. So let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Raymond Jason, because at first he sounds kind of cool, but then it goes downhill real fast. So he is older and independently wealthy. And like a lot of men in our vintage horror books, he's like nothing but smoking hot, rippling muscle, pumping with testosterone. How did he get so jacked at such an advanced age? Well, the author tells us that he just does isometric exercises all the time. Just completely unconscious. He'll just randomly do it. Now, I've been working out consistently for quite a while at this point in my life. And I had no idea what isometric exercises were. (laughs) So I had to look it up. I've done them in classes. I didn't know they were called isometric exercises, but that is basically where you hold contractions for a set amount of time instead of doing reps. So think like wall sits and planks. Those are isometric exercises. So all I can picture is this like sexy as fuck daddy, like bulging out of his clothes because the author tells us many times just how like fucking jacked he is. Randomly dropping into, like, chair pose in the middle of a conversation. And just sitting there. I could see people doing that stuff, though. I know, but I hate it. So, thanks, Thomas Page. You took one of my ultimate fantasies, a rich, absurdly hot daddy, and you turned him into a douche. I mean, to be honest, a lot of people like that are kind of douchey. Rich, absurdly hot daddies? Mm Mm-hmm. Not that I know a whole lot of them. Yeah, but they're fun to look at. I don't know. My dad worked 60 hours a week when I was younger, so I just kind of like older guys. (laughs) Anyway, maybe that's why I hated this book, except not it was boring. So I'm going to distill it down to the parts that are actually interesting. So John Moon was actually a Green Beret in the Vietnam War. Okay. Uh, He's the sole survivor when his group was completely slaughtered. Uh, He pretended to be dead, I believe. 
And then he survived on lizards and tarantulas uh, until he eventually hunted down and killed a Vietnamese man, then strung a bow with his guts Mm. to fight his way out of Vietnam. So obviously he came back with a little bit of trauma and an amount of baggage that makes me look like I'm traveling light. So he goes on a spirit journey to find himself again. That's, I mean, okay. Which is valid, but also like Thomas Page, you're white. I, anyway. So I'm going to skip over a lot of the boring shit. Eventually, John and Raymond both wind up following Modest Foot to a secluded ski lodge. And it's next to an old mining town. And Modest Foot, along with Modest Foot's bride, have been living in the abandoned caves. There's like a lady Modest Foot. Good for them. They're just trying to have a life. Honestly, at the end of the day, that's actually the case. Like, they're just trying to have a life, and they kill people when they're disturbed. I mean, that's their house. Exactly. So Raymond stays on at the lodge simply because he can, because he's super wealthy. But John is hired by the owner. The owner thinks it would be just such a novel idea to have John teach archery lessons. John Moon, our indigenous (laughs) person. Sure. Yeah. Uh, to the wealthy white people. And the owner is basically like, literally, it was just like, I think people would find it really novel to have, here I'm changing the quote, an indigenous person teaching them archery. People probably would think that that's novel. It's a lot. To be completely honest with you, you talked about my tabs in the side of this book. There's not a whole bunch of them, but a majority of them mark really problematic descriptions of John. Mm. In the defense of Thomas Page, I don't think he's writing that to be okay. The archery instruction, all the other problematic parts, obviously Thomas thinks he can do. But the archery part, like, I don't know. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of casual racism and appropriation just kind of sprinkled liberally throughout this book, like salt in a good recipe. But he does not paint this archery job as anything but undignified for John. But John goes along with it because he's trying to find Modest Foot. Speaking of, when warned of the threat of Modest Foot, the owner wants to set up Bigfoot hunts, like as an excursion for the people staying at the ski lodge. And he specifically mentions wanting to make like gift baskets for people. But he will need to include condoms because all the adrenaline and the terror of the hunt is certain to make all of the ladies very, very horny. (laughs) That's literally like what he says. (laughs) I mean. Which at least there's no reference to them peeing themselves. Do people even use condoms in the 70s? Come on. Yikes. Worry not, though. There's still like a really awkwardly sexualized image of a character named Martha who also works at the lodge, but we'll get to that. So we have a bit of an interlude here where Raymond is trying to solve the mystery of Modest Foot while also exploring the caves. And John is still trying to connect with Modest Foot for the sake of his spirit journey. But it all goes to shit one day when a character named Lester is chasing a dog in the woods And he hears a sound in the trees and, as we've already mentioned, seems to be people's reaction. He shoots at the sound. And down out of the trees falls baby Bigfoot. Oh, 
no. He's dead. Oh, no. So Lester takes the corpse of baby Bigfoot back to the cabin. And the Bigfoots, big feet, Bigfoots, feet, um, mm. the podiacally blessed creatures attack and kill him in his cabin. And at this point, they snap and just start attacking the lodge as a whole. Ah, that's pretty understandable, though. Like I said, like, our modest foot and his partner, they were living their happy lives. Modest foot only killed the hunters when they shot at him. Modest foot only attacked the ski lodge when the baby was killed. Like, I mean, honestly, it sounds... I don't know if it's intentional. It sounds like the hunters are supposed are kind of the villains of the story. Yeah, leave modest foot alone. Uh, so the owner decides that he's going to evacuate the lodge, but the big feet, Bigfoot, I don't still don't know. Anyway, they set up a trap and the van full of evacuees goes over a bridge. <laughs> bum bum bum. Anyway, I think there's like one survivor. I don't know. He's not that important. But eventually we do split the party. Of our main characters. So Raymond and John take snowmobiles down to the van wreckage where they are attacked by the male Bigfoot. And John follows him to the caves. Meanwhile, the female Bigfoot has trapped Raymond, who has returned, Martha, and the sheriff in the lodge. Okay. Uh, While in the caves, John finds evidence of funeral pyres for many, many children. So we assume that there were a lot of, like, early child deaths. So here's the deal with the Big Feet and how they're explained. Uh, they are apparently the byproduct of humans and some sort of ape. Yes, category is bestiality. Hmm. Which, given all the other weird sexual stuff that I've run across in these books, I was pleasantly surprised. It was like finally checking off a box on a to-do list or getting that punch card at the end of a... 10-day streak of coffees. Where where does this take place? Because I feel like there's not a lot of places in America that, like, apes are indigenous. Well, so what it really is is, like, way back through the ages. Mm. So it was basically kind of explained that what it was is shortly after the common ancestor that apes and humans share branched off, they were still interbreeding. Okay. So it's kind of explained as a like they're still close and closely related enough to have offspring sort of thing. But also Bigfoot has been afflicted with inbreeding and congenital diseases, so they are dying off and having trouble reproducing. It's like the Bigfoot Hills have eyes. Pretty much. Uh, but that's the way to explain like all of the funeral pyres sure. and also why the big feet were so exceptionally upset because they finally had a child that was growing up and then Lester shot it. Mm. So when John and Bigfoot have a final confrontation, Bigfoot blows up the caves with dynamite. Which he got from. I don't remember <laughs> because I didn't write it in my notes because I hated this book so much and I read it three months ago. Sometimes so. people just come up with dynamite. Sometimes it's just there. It's laying around. Well, Bigfoot had been kind of like hoarding things. Sure. From like the construction of the ski lodge. So I think that's where it came from. John survives, but he is driven deeper into the mines. We will get back to that later. Meanwhile, Bride of Modest Foot is destroying the lodge's cabins and attacking our survivors. 
There's a moment where it gets like really quiet. So like an idiot, Martha decides that she's going to go to the window and check. And Martha is grabbed by female Bigfoot through the window around her middle. So it's like that cliche movie, like arms come through the window, shattering it and grab her. Sure. And as she's being pulled through, she is folded in half so that she becomes, quote, hips and breasts with nothing in between. And if that doesn't sum up how women are seen in vintage (laughs) horror, I don't know what does. (laughs) Oh, man. I know a lot of people who see women like that. And they're all trash. Anyway. (laughs) Or legislators. (laughs) Your face right now is frozen. It's so good. Anyway. (laughs) Oh, God. That completely derailed me. All right. So... The explosion in the mines causes a landslide, which stops the attack from female modest foot. Our survivors escape, and Raymond decides that he's going to track down female modest foot. John, who has escaped the mines, has now decided that his spirit animal is not modest foot. It is Raymond. So he sets out to follow him. The end. I'm sorry. Wait. The spirit animal of the Native American main character ends up being a white guy? Yes. Okay. I told you, it was real problematic. (laughs) Maybe it's a love story. Maybe they're actually in love. I kind of wanted it to go that way, but it didn't. Oh, boy. Yeah. Anyway. Also, there's no spirits in this. The spirit animal. I get that. Bigfoot is referred to as the spirit in all of John's chapters. Yeah, I get that. But he's like not a spirit, right? He's like a real thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I know. So I know this summary probably sounds like it's at least reasonably exciting. But keep in mind that I summarized a book that was like 400 pages at its original publication. I would like to note here that all of the paperbacks from hell... Series are printed in teeny tiny type, so they have deceptively short page counts. Uh, I summarized all that in about 20 minutes. So the rest of me was utterly mind-numbing. This book reminds me a lot more of, like, the testosterone-fueled action stories of the 50s that I had to read a lot of for a class in undergrad that basically were just made to make men who worked desk jobs all day feel manly. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But for that reason, I'm personally, and this is just my opinion, someone else may love this, am going to give this book one out of five human gut string bows. Because the thing is, like, when I love a book, I, like, fly through it. You've seen how fast I'll read a book if I'm really, really into it. But... This was an exhausting exercise of forcing myself to finish reading something I just couldn't stand. Like, I don't know. I just, I didn't like it. If you're interested, gentle listener, I support you. Give it a shot. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't care too much for Bigfoot and stuff. It also does not seem like it's at all about what I would, if you show me that book, I would not have guessed this at all. It looks like it's a ghost story. 
I was wanting like people trapped in a cabin that has like a ghost or a demon or something in it. That's what I wanted. That is not what I got. No. I don't really have much else to say about it other than it sounds pretty problematic. I mean, it's hard. It, it's the 70s, right? So you have to kind of think of it a little bit through that lens. Yeah. So even the fact that John Moon is called an Indian throughout for the time, for the time, is less problematic than it would be if it were written today. But it's, I mean, it's, it's still interesting. Even the whole, like, Raymond becoming his spirit animal at the end is a little bit weird. Yeah, I don't... How can another person be someone's spirit animal? I don't know anything about that. That's not my culture. And I get the feeling that Thomas Page doesn't know as much as he thinks he does either. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true also. Anyway... (laughs) If you were in the spirit, would you get killed? Probably. I mean, basically everyone dies. Like there's a few people in a van, or I mean, like there's a few people in the lodge who are survivors. Like I think the sheriff and Martha survive. And then you have John and Raymond. But I probably would have been one of those people in the van who went off the bridge and died, which is pretty lame. Uh, Would you die in the shed? Um, hmm. Hard to say. I mean, all you have to do to live is like avoid the shed. So I don't even know how to answer that. Other than say that. I guess if I were like forced to go in the shed, then obviously there's no way I would escape it. But I'm not sure that I necessarily would be. It's hard to it's hard to hard to say. I'm trying to think of, like, an interesting answer to this, but I just don't know if there is an interesting answer to this. Like, the vampire seems to kill everybody once he gets out, so maybe I would on that level. But I also... Yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything interesting to say about that. But (laughs) I think the more interesting question with the shed, to be honest, is would you put people in the shed, which we already kind of touched upon... I don't think that I would. I guess it depends who it was. I wouldn't. I mean, we already covered that I've achieved the best revenge of looking better than the people who picked on me in high school. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I generally am, like, not too vindictive. I don't really wish death upon a whole lot of people. There are some people I don't care about when they die. Anyway, I don't have anything smart or funny to say about any of this. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you would like, you can find us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us anything you want with questions or comments. Or if you have a suggestion, secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.